So uh, I'm, I'm a little bit of a nerd. You can ask Claire sometime about how many fantasy books I have on my shelf. One thing I love is uh, basically what they call cage fights, where they put together like characters from different realms. Like, who would win in a war between Gandalf and Dumbledore? You know, or does Luke Skywalker stand any chance against John Wick? You know, those kind of questions. Of course, Luke Skywalker would get wiped. I think we can all agree on that. Um, but you know, one of the things we have in Scripture is, interestingly, this spirit versus flesh dichotomy. Now, one thing I want to think about before we get into the spirit is we talked about Christ last week. Uh, Christ in John 16, 7 says something very interesting, considering that he's the champion that we said he is. Because there he says, Nevertheless, I am telling you the truth. It is for your benefit that I go away. Because I don't go, if I don't go away, the counselor will not come to you. If I go... I will send him to you. Now, now, that's a striking statement. If Christ is everything we said he is, and he is, he said, it's for your benefit that I go away, which is just doesn't make sense at first glance. I mean, if you have ever watched Lord of the Rings, imagine that moment where Gandalf gets to Helm's Deep, and he's at the top of the hill, and they're about to make that charge down, and he's like, yeah, it's actually better if I like, just leave and never makes the charge. It would be a little bit like Aragorn's like, no, you should make the charge. It's like, we're, we need help down here. It's a little bit of a shocking statement, but uh, whereas Gandalf, if he had run away, there would have been no one to replace him. Christ has actually done his work, and he's going and able to send a counselor, to send the Spirit, and that's going to be for our benefit. Um, and the Spirit's going to become critical for our life as Christians, just absolutely essential for what it means to be a Christian. So just a few verses, John 3, 5, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. You can't even enter the kingdom of God unless you're born of the Spirit. It's just a simple prerequisite. And then 1 John 4, 13, this is how we know that we live in God and he in us. He has given us of his Spirit. So how do we know that we've entered the kingdom? How do we know that God lives in us and that we live in him? It's all through the spirit. And so one thing I want you to take note of is that while Christ came, as we said, to destroy the works of the devil last week, the spirit has a particular context in his ministry, which is he's not so much juxtaposed against the the devil. He's really juxtaposed against our flesh. That is where his ministry takes place most prominently. And that's where his work will take effect. And that's where he will affect salvation for God's people, is where Christ undid the works of the devil. He then goes to send the spirit, which will then take war up against our flesh. That's primarily uh, his area of expertise. And so uh, briefly, I want to walk through just kind of the state of the believer. And we're not going to spend a ton of time in Romans 6, points 2 and 3 today on the flesh and the spirit. We'll get most of our time. But just one thing I want you to know, because as I'm going to talk about the Spirit, like I said, um, this, is, this is stage one of becoming a Christian, is being born of the Spirit. And so just everything I'm going to say is going to apply largely to Christians today. And so I just want to, for a second, acknowledge that if that's not you, if you've not been born of the Spirit, you need to know that the sin of the world came in through Adam and the trespasses multiplied in Adam for all of us who were born in Adam. And we live in that sin, 
And that whenever God's law came into the world, we chose to, instead of doing that law, as we're going to see later, we just actually, as we learned the law, we violated the law. Sin seized opportunity in our flesh, in our weakness, to transgress, to sin against God. And that breeds death. Spiritual death, physical death, death apart, life apart from God. And that is terrible. But just as one man gave way to trespass, we're going to see that Christ, as we saw last week, gave way to abounding grace so that justification can happen for many. So that through his life, his death, and his resurrection, that many might be saved, that he could be a ransom for many, that he could erase certificates of debts and obligations, and that he could make a way for eternal life with God. And so if you, as we're going to see, we need to be baptized. What that means is that we need to be unified with God through Jesus Christ, by the Spirit. We need to participate in Christ in his death and in his resurrection. We need to to repent and we need to have faith and we need to believe. And that's expressed most prominently in baptism. So if you've not ever been baptized, I encourage you, I mean, talk to somebody here about what that would mean to be baptized in order to follow Christ in newness of life, in repentance and faith. So, if that's you, I encourage you to meditate on these things as we talk about the Spirit. But I do want, for those of you who have done that, who've made that choice, who are walking in newness of life, we need to think then about what's the state of the believer. And briefly, I just want to make a few points from Romans 6. And I will stop about midway through the lesson. And and if you have any questions, you can ask those. So just maybe jot down things that are confusing or that you'd like to get clarified. I'd love to answer those uh, kind of about halfway through. I'll stop. But just a few things about Romans 6, right? Um, As we've said, in 6, 5 through 7, I'll just read these verses. We'll have some help from you all later to read. But there he says, For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless, so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin, since a person who has died is freed from sin. So one of the beautiful realities of being born of the Spirit, of being unified with Christ, is that we are united with him in his death. We are united with him at the cross, where our old self, the self of sin and death and the bodily, uh, the corruptible body, are dealt with at the cross. We're united with him there. But the glorious news of being united with him at his death is that we're also then united with him in his resurrection. As we're going to see repeatedly here, that is a ministry of the Spirit, is resurrection power. That we are walking in newness of life. Not only that the body ruled by sin is crucified, but in that crucifixion, it's even rendered powerless. It no longer has power over you. Remember how we talked about the atonement? In getting rid of guilt and shame, that's the same thing as getting rid of Satan's power. Because Satan doesn't have power in and of himself. His power is rooted in our guilt and our shame. So when that's eliminated, sin's power is also then eliminated. And that's just a beautiful reality. So we need to be dead to sin. And we need to know sin is rendered powerless. Now, one thing to know is in verse 11, this is primarily a mindset that you need to gain. You need to think this way. He says, so you too consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. To live this way, to live in light of that reality, takes some consideration. 
You have to think about it. It's a way of thinking that you need to be trained by in Christ through the Spirit. To consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And, and don't ever brush over phrases like in Christ Jesus. They're essential to the New Testament. Uh, this is only possible, again, in Christ. But you do need to consider yourself this way. Now, one thing that that doesn't mean is that we don't have to resist sin still. Uh, you'll see in verse 12, he says the application of verse 11 is, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Okay, if you're going to consider yourself dead to sin, why would you have to resist letting sin rule in your mortal body? Well, that means that sin has some presence still around us and in us. That even though we're considering ourselves dead to sin, that practically means that we can't let sin rule and reign. And so that doesn't mean that we don't resist that. And what's at stake is life and death. So just verses 21 through 23. So what fruit was produced then from the things you are now ashamed of? The outcome of those things is death. But now, since you have been set free from sin and have become enslaved to God, you have your fruit, which results in sanctification, and the outcome is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So life and death are, are the stakes of what we're talking about right now. Uh, no small things. But the glory of this is that we can actually even connect this uh, even back to Genesis 3, right? And we could talk about what does it mean to be dead? Because on one level, we are talking about physical death, but on another level, we need to talk about with, even with Adam and Eve, they were told, when you eat of this tree, you will surely die. And sometimes people will say, well, they didn't die when they ate of that tree. But in truth, there's a way in which they really did die the second they ate from it. Um, because to be dead primarily in the scriptures means to be apart from God. That's what it means. It means that you're not living in the presence of God. So Psalm 36.9, for example, is a verse that you can think about. But in Psalm 36.9, it says, For the wellspring of life is with you, that is God, and by means of your light we see light. So God is himself the wellspring of life. So the second that Adam and Eve are choosing to hide in the bushes, they're dead. And it's only actually when God calls them out of the bushes that they start to have any hope of living again. That's why Adam has any hope of actually calling Eve the mother of the living and thinking that makes any sense. Because there's kind of an inauguration of death, which is life apart from God, and the fulfillment of that is when our cells break down when our bodies give way and we die, and of course then we're judged and we spiritually die before the throne of God. But you just need to realize that if you're living apart from God, you're, you know, we have this expression, you're as good as dead. You know, if somebody has a gunshot and their, their lungs have collapsed, I mean, it's just, how do you comfort them? They're as good as dead. That's why Ephesians 2, when it says you were dead in your trespasses, well, that can't make sense if that we have to physically die in order to be dead on some level. It means that we're dead in trespasses, aka we're not with God, therefore we're not living. That's why our bodies, even in the first place, begin to break down. It's because we're not living with God. And we'll see how horrifying of a reality this is for Paul as he meditates on it. Um, just one quick application. Just realize that this is why confession is good. I mean, at the very least, confession to God. If you're not being honest with him, you need to confess your sins. He's faithful. He's just. He'll forgive you from all unrighteousness. 
but also practically it's good to confess to one another. One of the byproducts of hiding in the bushes for Adam and Eve was that they end up actually obscuring themselves from each other. They're going to be kind of not seeing each other very clearly. And one of the things that should happen as we get called out and we're being honest with ourselves before God is that we should actually start to be able to see each other truly again too. And so let God call you out of the bushes, confess your sins to him, and if you can confess them to him, and there's mercy, and there's grace, and there's goodness that can come from that, I hope that we can find the same and we confess to one another and we see each other again. So that's just a little bit about the state of the believer in Romans 6. Now, I want to get into the futility of the flesh in Romans 7. Um, And we're going to spend a little bit of time here, and you're going to have three kind of points we're going to go over, and then I'll stop and take questions at the end of this section. Um, But I want to talk first about just the nature of our flesh. How does it work? What's it like? And so there's a couple things that we can think about here. Would somebody be interested in reading Romans 7, 5 through 11 for us? Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, I think there's just some great things. Thank you for reading. I think there's some great things in there to meditate about kind of the nature of sin. How does sin operate? It's really good to think about that so that we can be aware of Satan's schemes, of how our own flesh is susceptible to those schemes. The first thing is just realize simple passions are aroused through the law. That's one of the horrifying realities you're going to see here uh, in verse 5. When we were in the flesh, the simple passions aroused through the law were working in us to bear fruit for death. You know, sin and Satan need God's laws actually to operate. Sin is the very definition of a virus, if you want to think about it that way. We have a lot of thoughts about viruses these days. But I looked this up, and I thought it was fascinating. A virus, this is a kind of paraphrase of Webster's, but it said, a virus is usually, this is the quote, usually regarded as non-living molecules, it's not living, that are capable of growth and multiplication only in living cells. That's just fascinating. It's a non-living thing that's capable of growth and multiplication only in living cells. That is exactly, I mean, that sounds just exactly like what sin is. Something that on its own is dead and is death, but that actually seizes what is good and what is life, and it twists and it warps that which is good in order to breed death in us. And so this is, this is one thing you need to look at. Sin in verse, I think it's... Um, Uh, Where is that? In verse 11, right? For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. I mean, there's a couple connections right there to even Genesis 3. Does anybody hear echoes of Genesis 3 there? 
This is you can interact if you want to call it out. What do you, do you see anything? Who does Paul sound like in verse 11? For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. Does he sound like anybody we've ever read about? Eve? Who said Eve? Yeah, that's right. It sounds a lot like Eve, doesn't it? You know, who, why, who, why did you do this? The serpent deceived me, and I ate. It's very similar language. Paul's acknowledging that he's living in the same reality that Eve did. He's like, I got lied to, and I believed it. I believed it, and it's killing me. It killed me, in fact. And so that's one thing that we just need to know about how sin operates. It comes through God's commandments. The second we hear, do not covet, we start thinking about, well, man, what should I not be coveting? I'm kind of coveting that right now. I, you know, growing up, I, the, my mom used to put these little Debbies in the corner on top of the pantry, and for the longest time, I had no idea where she got them from. And, you know, I'd just be happy when she pulled them out, and I would eat one. And then one day I learned where they were, and I knew I wasn't really supposed to do it, but I felt like an Olympic athlete, crawling across the pantries, climbing up on top of it, and I would take them. And I'd try to take them in doses that my mom might not notice. She probably did, but I would try to be like, oh, I'll just take one now and one a week later, and so but maybe she won't know, and she never really did confront me, so maybe I got away with it on one level. But it was crazy that I never once wanted to crawl up and look in that corner of the pantry until I learned there were little Debbies there that I knew I shouldn't take. That's exactly what sin is like. The second there's something good that we can abuse and take and steal, we do that. That's the flesh in us. It warps everything good from God and wants to use it towards our own selfish ends. That's one way you need to be aware of sin. So when you hear about good things, you need to be wary that you don't interact with them improperly. Um, one thing that we can even see is that sin is then blatantly against God because it only represents where we're violating God's commandments, right? That, that, sin only operates where God gives commands. And we see that time and time throughout Scripture. We can even see it later um, where he says, when I want to do what is good, evil is present with me. <laughs> what a terrifying statement. Um, and so we, we need to think about that. But the second thing about sin that I want us to see is that it's also not rational. Sin's not rational. Verse 15, I know it's a little bit past what we read but I do want to start getting into it, and it'll segue us into the next point. For I do not understand what I am doing, because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. One of the things you need to know about sin is that it can't be outlogicked. Like, it, you, you can't logic your way into even understanding all your sin. If any of you have ever told a lie, and then later on you're like, I wish I could stop lying, but you can't because you're just caught up in the lie and you keep lying, even though you know like you don't want to lie anymore. If I asked you long enough, like, why did you do that? At some point, you might throw up your hands and go like, I, I don't know. I guess it felt better to lie than not to lie. But the second you actually are having a moment of self-reflection, you're like, that doesn't make any sense. And it doesn't. Sin is irrational. And you can't always logic your way to an answer on sin. You, you don't always even know all the reasons that you do. Sin is so indwelled in us, apart from God, that it even affects our minds. It even affects the way we think. So 
We actually, in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, he says, in their case, the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Sin is even a knowledge problem. We don't even know all the reasons we do things because of sin, which is frustrating. And it means that we need help, a lot of help. So those are a couple things to think about with sin. It's going to come through commands. And then the second you actually think about it, it's not rational. And this rationality uh, leads us into our next point, that our flesh is dominant. Our flesh is the dominant aspect of ourselves outside of God. So in Romans 7, 14 through 18, would somebody read that really quick? Yeah, thank you, Aaron. Um, yeah, so th- there's some things in here about the dominance of our flesh. And there's you know, some that we could read in other verses. But one of the things that we should think about is that we're sold as a slave to sin in our flesh. The, the problem with our flesh is that it's so dominant. And, and part of what Paul's doing here in Romans 7 is he's taking a very small view of himself where it's just, because part of what he's trying to answer is, okay, if the law is good and I want to do what's good, why don't I do what's good? Because I'm not doing what's good. And he's saying, the law is good. I have good desires, but I'm not doing what's good. Why? And his answer keeps coming back to, I'm helpless against my flesh. My flesh is dominant in me. That even when I know the law of God, and I even want to do the law of God, there's this other law of the flesh operating in me that's so powerful that even like in verse 23, he says that it's taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. It's taking him prisoner. I mean, Paul, in some ways, actually is, you know, and there's other places, we're not completely a victim, but in some ways, Paul is actually saying, I'm helpless. He's looking around himself and just seeing a cage of flesh that he can't get away from. And it's dominant. It's incredibly paralyzing to him. You can see that he identifies two powers competing within him, right, in 18. For I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh. For the desire to do what is good is with me, but there's no ability to do it. You know, and he's going to go back and forth. There's this delight of God in my inner mind, but in the parts of my body, there's just another law operating. And Paul is kind of able to look at two parts of himself. And he's feeling very double-minded as he examines himself in this way. And he even says in verse 21, like I said, when I want to do what is good, evil is present with me. We just need to be aware our flesh is dominant. And even when we think about all of that, that's going to drive us to just understanding the third point. That second point's kind of quick. We are basically, our, our sin in nature is irrational, and it is incredibly, incredibly abusing of God's commandments. But then it's also dominant. But then we also have the weakness of our flesh. That's the third point Paul is, is highlighting And that's basically just, would somebody read verses 22 through 24 of 7?
Yes. Um, and then, would you read 24 as well? Yeah. Yeah, now we need to not, a lot of you want to skip ahead and read the next, next verse, but we can't go there yet. Because we just need to realize that uh, Paul is, is right here, not looking at the full scope of who he is. He hasn't brought the spirit in yet. We're about to get there. Praise God for that. But right now he's taking a very particular, hey, if it's just me on my own, can I follow the law? And his answer is basically saying, I'm too weak. I am too weak. And he says, I have the desire to do good, but not the will to do it. And, you know, he, he basically is trying to communicate something about what it means to even try to do good. Right, even that, when I want to do what is good, evil lies close at hand. You just need to think about, the more you, like, try by your flesh to do good, like, there's, like, a wall here that, like, you just keep going up, and it's like an asymptom- uh, uh, asymmetrical line that always, you can get kind of close, but you'll never actually breach into doing good. And because the further you get there, the more resistance you're going to meet. The more you want to do good in your flesh, the more you're going to get shoved up, and you're just going to keep trying to ascend that hill until you get tired and you give up and you die. And that's just something we need to realize. So even implications for fighting sin, some of you are going to be frustrated with something you're dealing with today. You're going to be like, I don't know why I can't give this up. Well, it might be that one explanation is that you're trying to do good, but you're trying to do good out of your flesh. So the fact is, is, is you know, sometimes people want to give up things like pornography or drunkenness or anger or whatever it is. And sometimes you see people in the world and it feels like they're so successful at it that it's frustrating, <laughs> frankly. But one thing I want to enc- encourage you to think about in terms of being at war is that those people aren't always at war. Most of them aren't. And the road is broad that leads to destruction. You know, Satan and death are described as shepherds in Psalm 49, 14. And if Satan looks at somebody's life and he's like, hey, I can move this person from that addiction to prideful self-sufficiency, both of those are going towards death. And Satan's like, that's fine. And he might let them do that. The second he sees somebody wanting to get off the broad road and onto the narrow road that leads to life to turn around and go a different direction, your flesh is acting up, Satan hates it, you're going to have evil close at hand trying to do everything they can to keep you on the broad road. So when you're at war, you need to be extremely serious about it. And then we just get that, that horrifying expression, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from the body of death? I don't know if you've thought about it, having a body of death today, but the unfortunate news is that that's exactly what you have. You didn't even get a choice. You were born into this body in Adam, but you were born with a body of death and your flesh is weak and it doesn't have the manpower to do what it needs to do, even if you want to do it. It's weak. And Paul is just feeling frustrated. If you feel the insanity and the madness of Paul where he's going back and forth, that's exactly what you're supposed to do because he's like, I would love to do something good, but I can't because I have a body of death. And I don't know how to escape it. So then he cries out, who will rescue me? And that is what this passage is intended. More than anything, it's not to tell us to stay here. Paul is trying to get us to cry out this very question. Who will rescue me from this body of death? And that brings us into our next point about the strength of the Spirit. Because there is, praise God, an answer to all that. I do want to stop, and I'll just take brief questions if any of you have questions about any of that. 
Any, any questions? Anything I, you want me to clarify? Going once, twice. Okay, let's keep going. We have discussion groups afterwards. We can handle things there. So I want to get into the strength of the Spirit. And um, basically, I want us to see that Paul does have an answer to the body of death. And largely, it is the spirit of life, as he says in 8.2, because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Now, again, it's good to highlight, the only reason we have the spirit is because of verse 3. What the law could not do since it was weakened by the flesh, right? The law is good, but because of our flesh, it can't do what it was supposed to do. God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering. The whole reason we have the Spirit is because Christ died as a sin offering, rose again, went back and said, I'm going to send the Spirit to you so that you have the resources, the firepower, the aid that you finally need to do what the law was trying to get you to do but could never do in your flesh. And he even says that, right? Why did God condemn his son as a sin offering? Verse 4, in order that the law's requirement would be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So God, God sent his son to die for a purpose in order that the law's fulfillment in you would happen, but it's not going to happen through the law and your flesh anymore. It's going to happen through the spirit. That's going to be how it comes about. And there's just four ways I want us to think about what does it mean to walk with the Spirit? Because that can sound so abstract that you're like, I have no idea what that means. Walk with the Spirit? I mean, do I hold his hand or something? You're like, no, I don't see any hands. Okay, so what does walk with the Spirit mean? And there's four points I just want to walk through. And Trey will be able to walk us through Ephesians 6 and apply some of these more next week. But four things I think that we can think about in terms of the Spirit and what it means to walk with him in strength. One is that we have new meditations. We have new meditations. And by that, I primarily mean Romans 8, 5. For those who live according to the flesh have their mind set on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit have their minds set on the things of the Spirit. So the first stage of walking with the Spirit is to not set your mind on things of the flesh anymore, but to set your mind on things of the Spirit. Now, this is practically going to look like getting into God's Word, 2 Timothy 3.16. All scriptures God breathes, like God's Spirit is infusing and empowering these very pages that for those who are coming to walk with Him, this is how He wants to walk with them primarily. So, one thing that's great is, is getting into God's Word. And even in 1 Corinthians 3, or 2 actually, He says that, that we have the mind of God, the mind of Christ, because of the Spirit who has plumbed the depths, because he is God, therefore he knows the depths of God. And if he comes to us, then he's revealing to us the ways in the mind of God, at least to some degree, which is glorious. And so that's kind of what you're getting, not kind of, that is what you are getting in this, is the mind and thoughts of God. And you need to be meditating on them. Imagine, you know, if you have like a crush and you were to find a notebook with like all their like favorite things and everything. And, and imagine that it was okay to read it. It's not. But, you know, for a second, imagine that you knew they wanted you to read it. Like they wanted you to read it. So you would know everything they loved so that then you could do that for them. That's a lot what the Bible is like. It's like God saying, hey, here's what pleases me. Think about these things. Do these things. I love these things. 
So that's, that's one thing. And, and we also need to be wary of our flesh because we also need to take note of 6 and 7. The verse 6 and 7. Now the mindset of the flesh is death, but the mindset of the spirit is life and peace. The mindset of the flesh is hostile to God because it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it is unable to do so. So just one practical application is just your flesh is not inactive ever. Your flesh is never inert. It's not a neutral observer. So one thing that you need to just, this is how you're going to do warfare, is you're going to have to revamp the most ordinary basic things in your life. When you wake up in the morning and you don't want to read God's word because you're tired, that's not, you know, that's just not happening by, by random coincidence. That is your flesh. That is the body of death despising the things of life. When you're saying, I would rather sleep 15 more minutes than read God's word for 15 more minutes, realize that what you're actually doing there is you're saying, I have a preference, and I think there's more life to be found in sleep than I do think there's life in God's word. I think there's more life in sleep than there is in God's word. The, the body of flesh, the, the, the body of death, when you wake up, because it is so weak, wants to, and it's, it hates God, you need to think this way such that it's going to say, hit the snooze button. And you're going to go, yeah, that doesn't sound so bad. Five more minutes. And then four times later, 20 minutes have gone by, and you're like, I need to take a shower. And now you haven't read God's word. And we don't realize how demonic that is. I'm not saying sleep has no place. You need to find healthy sleep patterns. But I am saying you need to be aware that when you wake up and you're groggy, that is the body of death. That's the weakness of flesh preventing you from reading God's word. And one of the ways you're going to rise in warfare is to, to push through that and find life in God's word. So that's one way we can meditate, the most practical way we can meditate. I also want us to see that we have a new identity, that one of the ways the Spirit empowers us is by a new identity. Um, in 8, 12 through 15, I'll just read those. So then, brothers and sisters, we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh, because if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all those led by God's Spirit are God's sons. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. One of the things we need to see, we're not obligated to the flesh anymore. Praise God. That word obligation, has the, it relates in Colossians 2 when he said he erased the certificate of, it, of debt and its obligations. Debts come with obligations, a.k.a. you have to pay them off. One of the great things is that because Christ was condemned, that debt is eliminated. The burden gets thrown off your back, and you actually now are not obligated to the flesh, but now you should be obligated to God, not out of fear and slavery, but out of love. Because all he wants you to do is come home as a child of God. In Luke 15, it's a great parable to connect right here. The, the child who goes off and wastes his inheritance. He's trying to work in these unclean mud pits because he wants to make the money back so he doesn't have to go home in shame to his father. He wants to go back with everything he lost. Problem is, is he's not making enough money to do it. And eventually he comes to his senses, it says, and he says, I'd rather have food and clothing so I'm going to go home, and he says he's going to confess three things. He says, I've sinned against you, Father, in the sight of heaven. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Take me back like one of your hired hands. Those are the three things he wants to say to his father, and he thinks it's a great idea. And to be true, 
it is a better idea than working in pig pits. But he gets back to his father, and his father greets him, and he let, the father lets him say, I've sinned against you in the sight of heaven. I'm not worthy to be called one of your sons. But the beautiful part of that parable is that's where the father interrupts. That he never lets him say, take me back like one of your hired hands. That kind of heartwarming welcome, that even though the father recognizes, yeah, the first two things you said are true, I'm not going to let you say the third thing. I'm, I'm happy. I've heard what I need to hear. Come, and then he invites him into a feast with him. Now, you can imagine if that son sinned again, if he hated his father again, that would just be totally, we would be baffled. We would hate that character in a movie. We would hate that son if after all the father had done, all the kindness the father had shown, that son despised his father still. And that is the gift of God. It's not random. It's meant to provoke in us love for God that then is operating in obedience and fidelity, wants to be like God in every way because it's a, it's, it adores God. You know, the only reason you should ever be pure in heart is Matthew 5, 8. The beatitude is blessed are the pure in heart. Does anybody know the promise? Did you say receive? Well, kind of, but it's one specific word. For they will see God. One of the greatest promises we have is the idea that we will get to see God. When Thomas touches his hands and his side, you know, Jesus says, you believe because you've touched but blessed are those who have not seen and have believed. One of the things that should drive you in your Christian life more than anything is that you haven't seen Christ, the person who died for you, who loved you, who's resurrected and intercedes for you. If you knew that kind of person, you'd want to meet him, and you will. You will meet Christ. So let that drive you. Okay, I'm going to run through these next two points. I want to get to discretion groups, but um, new patients. A couple of things we need to know. The, the Spirit empowers us to have patience. 8.17 is a particular verse there. Actually, we're just going to skip, actually, to 23 through 25. And just in the sake of time, actually, just verse 25. Sorry. Now, if we hope for what we do not see, that is our bodily redemption, that's what Paul's talking about. That's what we're hoping to have happen. We eagerly wait for it with patience. The Spirit gives us a new kind of patience that doesn't give in to sin so quickly. One of the things we have to realize with sin is that it calls us uh, to escape suffering. Remember how we talked about Christ's temptation was to get out of suffering? That's all it does with us, too. It says, hey, stop suffering. But the lie there is that sin's the thing causing death. And then what it gives us to like, pretend like we're not dying is more death. Again, sin's not rational. <laughs> But we believe it because it allows us to, for a moment, to forget that we're dying. We got to break that lie up. One of the things the Spirit should be doing for you is keeping your mind fixed on the end so that you can endure the present. It's like, it's, it's following in Christ. It's suffering with Christ. It's bearing your cross, despising the shame of the moment for the glory that lies ahead. The Spirit should be empowering you to have that kind of vision in order to do that. You know, Hebrews 11, Moses is said to have wanted to suffer with God's people rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of Egypt. That is the call of all Christians. That is the call of faith. Suffer with God's people rather than enjoy fleeting pleasures because you know there's a city of God waiting for you. That Christ has gone to prepare a place. And so that's something that we want to think about very seriously. You know, we always keep our mind on the end because it motivates us now. 
You will never find a passage in Scripture talking about the end times that's not telling you how to live now. So, for example, I'm getting married in six days, and because I want to fit in the suit really nicely, I'm, I want to eat differently right now. I don't want to, I mean, if I ate junk food for the next six days, there's a possibility that thing would kind of stretch and it wouldn't look that great. But I know I'd like to look good in it. Now, maybe that's vanity. It probably is on some level. But do you see how, because of what I want to be true in six days, I'm changing what I'm doing right now? That's all that, that's why God offers us visions of the future. So that what we know is certain in coming and what we want to be true would start to shape how we live today. And then the final thing is you think about these things. The Spirit helps us in weakness to pray. We have new prayers. So the beautiful passage, 826, in the same way the Spirit also helps us in our weakness because we do not know what to pray for as we should. Remember how sin's a mind problem? Like we don't even know everything we need. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with unspoken groanings. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. It's beautiful when uh, later on, I think it's in Ephesians, where he says, you know, you don't even, God can do infinitely more than you even know to ask for or think. (laughs) That's because of the Spirit. Like you offer up your best prayers in faith and you can trust the Spirit actually is making things effective in your life. Now, in relation to sin, one of the things I want you to think about is that he's helping us in our weakness. That's connecting back to the weakness of the flesh. So when you have sin in your life, Even if you don't understand why you're sinning or it's driving you mad or crazy, one of the questions you have to ask yourself is, have I been on my knees lately? Am I praying in regards to that? Am I looking for refreshment? Do I I actually look more for like Netflix or for like board games or for something else to help me forget the madness of my flesh? Or am I going to the spirit for help? We've got to pray a lot more where we see sin in our lives. A lot more. And, you know, one thing to just think about, Christ does this for us, right? The Garden of Gethsemane, three times. Not, your, not my will be done, but your will. And that's the Lord's Prayer. So again, you need to make a habit of building the Lord's Prayer into your spiritual rhythms. Because it's going to have that very prayer, and it's going to keep you daily thinking about that. And then I'm just going to read as a way of kind of an encouragement to us, uh, Romans 8, 31 through 39. And, and I'm not really even going to say much about this because what more is there to say than what Scripture has for us? But I just want you to be encouraged. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died. But even more has been raised. He is also at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And just amen to all that. One thing that I will just call out in our theme of spiritual warfare is when I think he's asking, who is the one that condemns? Who's the one that accuses? I think one thing that he's saying in putting Christ in that place is he's saying it's no longer Satan. 
In Revelation 12, Satan gets cast down, and one of the things he can't do anymore is accuse the saints. <laughs> it's glorious news. One thing is you read the Old Testament, take note of it. In Genesis 3, the serpent gets to speak at the beginning. In Job, he's in the beginning. You know where he doesn't get to speak? At the end. Both times, God cuts him out of the picture. He tramples on him with promises and then fulfilling those promises. And Satan gets no final word in either of those situations. And if you're in Christ Jesus, Satan won't get the final word in your life either. Because who is it that condemns? God, God is the one who justifies. Who will accuse you? It's Christ Jesus. God is for you. The entire Trinity is bent on your behalf if you're in Christ Jesus. And Satan doesn't get a voice in that. So be encouraged. I hope that, that some of this is helpful and, and we'll break up in discussion groups. I'll pray and we'll go that way. Lord, we just come before you and we thank you that you have sent your spirit. We thank you, Jesus Christ, for making a way that the spirit could come and save Gentiles like us who were so far off from you. And Lord, in our farness and in in being so far away from you, we were dead, had no hope of life. For God, in Christ Jesus, the Spirit can now be sent to people. We pray that everyone in this room would take seriously what it means to have the Spirit, would cry out to you to save us from our bodies of death, trusting that the same Spirit that raised Christ Jesus can even give life to our mortal bodies in order that we may actually walk in righteousness now. And we pray that that would be our goal. We pray this with all hope and expectation that the Spirit can make these things true in our life. Praise in Christ's name. Amen.